Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. The maid who kept the door said to Peter, Are not you also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, Are not you also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the cock crowed. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may remember the name Randy Posh. Years ago, he wrote a book entitled The Last Lecture. Randy was a computer scientist. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He's a wonderful guy. He didn't get married until he was 39 years old. And there he found the person that he loved so much, and her name was Jay. Well, they planned out a wonderful wedding. It was going to be there on the fields of a a plantation, a Victorian plantation there in Pittsburgh. They got married under a 100-year-old oak tree. The weather cooperated. All the friends came. It was a beautiful day. No, it just turned out to be like a fairy tale. Now, when they got through with the reception, Randy had been thinking about it, and he didn't want to leave in a car or with a car cans tied on the back of it. He didn't want to even leave in a a nice carriage, horse-drawn carriage. No, he wanted something different. And so what he decided was they would leave the reception in a hot air balloon. It seemed like such a good idea. (laughs) They had had the wedding. They had the reception. It had all gone wonderful. And now they went over and he helped Jay climb into the basket in her wedding dress. And he climbed in in his suit. She looked at him and she said, This feels like a fairy tale ending from a Disney movie. They said their goodbyes, she threw the bouquet, they cut loose the, uh, the tethers, and it began to float up. And as it began to ascend, the balloon began kind of scraping and crashing into lots of tree limbs, and you heard all this breaking and cracking, and 
Randy said it wasn't exactly like the Hindenburg. But he was getting rather worried by the amount of noise it was making. And he looked over at the ballooner and said, is this normal? And he said, well, we usually don't hit this many branches and trees. But we usually find it's okay. Usually? It finally broke through the trees and began to send in a little more freedom. It got up higher. They'd gotten away late. The reception ran longer than they had hoped. It was a little closer to dusk now. And as they began to ascend and night came, well, the wind shifted. 180 degrees. They had expected to rise up and drift over these wonderful fields outside of, of Pittsburgh. But now they were going straight towards the city. And as they got closer to the city, then the wind started picking up and now they were out over three rivers and they were heading down the river. And Jay began to, and Randy began to feel rather anxious about this and, and he thought, you know, you should always look into the eyes of whoever's in charge to kind of get a sense for what's the situation. And, and so he looked into the eyes of the ballooner and he said, all that I saw was panic. I mean, this guy looked like he was panicked. And he said, so I suddenly felt panicked. And I'm looking around. And, and finally, he sees a field. And he says, we have to put it down there immediately. He begins pulling all these different levers, making things go in order to bring the balloon down. Jay looked over at Randy and said, I don't feel like a Disney princess anymore. Randy said he kind of felt like he might be in the starring role of a disaster movie. As they started coming down towards this field, he noticed there was a railroad track running right beside on the edge of the field. And he looked down the track and he saw that a train was coming. Now being a good computer analyst, thinking in these kind of terms, he turned to the ballooner and said, I'm noticing there's a number of variables here. And I think something bad really could happen. If we land and the balloon comes down and the train hits the the balloon. And the man said, you're absolutely right. I too am concerned. When we hit, the two of you need to jump out immediately and run as fast as you can. He said, we came down rather fast and bang, they hit and they bounced three times and the basket then fell over. Jay rolled out in her wedding dress there in the field. He was rolling around in his suit and they jumped up and started to run. But there were other people who were coming down the road who saw what was happening and they stopped and jumped out of their cars and ran to help. And when Randy saw it, then they all started pulling down the balloon and, and they kept it out of the way of the train and no one got hurt. And Randy said he stood there in this field and he thought eight hours into marriage, And we already have enough memories for a lifetime. It had seemed like such a good idea. But you know, sometimes things just don't work out the way that you planned. And in life, they never do. So often in life, it doesn't work out the way you plan, the way you expect Certainly didn't for Randy and Jay. It was six years later when he was 45 years old. They had had three children now. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Two years later at 47, 
Randy died. It wasn't what they had planned. But sometimes in life, there are those great moments of joy and and celebration and then the great moments of heartache and pain. Sometimes it's brought on because it's life. Sometimes it's brought on because of poor decisions on our part. We fail. We make mistakes. Life doesn't always work out the way you expect, the way you plan. And you can find yourself in a dark night of the soul. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples. The disciples were coming into Jerusalem and they just knew what was going to happen. They had worked and been a part of the planning to make it all right. I mean, all the people came out from Jerusalem and they started lining the streets and they were waving their palm branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna, son of David. I mean, the disciples knew there was momentum. People were joining in. Jesus surely would form an army. They would overthrow the Roman government. They would sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in power. He was the Messiah, the son of David. He was coming to restore Israel. They knew what was going to happen. Jesus came into Jerusalem. He went straight to the temple. He drove out the money changers. He turned over the tables of those who were buying and selling sacrifices. No, he, it all looked like there just had to be this moment. He kept coming back day after day to teach in the temple, and more and more crowds were coming. It was building. They knew what was going to happen until Thursday night. Thursday night, they were celebrating the Passover. They all came together there in an upper room and Jesus starts talking about being betrayed and how everyone was going to run away. And it was Peter who spoke up and said, Lord, I don't care what all they do. I'll never run away. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said tonight, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. They went out of the upper room and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there they were in a time of prayer. And while they were praying in the garden, along came Judas. And he kissed Jesus on the cheek. And out of the shadows stepped the soldiers. And they grabbed Jesus and they took him prisoner. And all the disciples ran away. It was John and Peter who followed along behind Jesus was taken to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas was the high priest. And there was a courtyard there for his home. And John, knowing the maid who was standing at the gate, came in. But then he came back to get Peter. And when he came back to get Peter, it was the maid who looked at him and said, You're one of his disciples. I do not know the man. He came inside and he stood around a fire. People were warming themselves. And as they stood there around this fire, kind of talking quietly in the night, another person spoke up and said, you got a Galilean accent. I bet you're his disciple. I, I, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. They continued to stand there. Another person walked up. And when they walked up, they said, I saw you in the garden tonight. I tell you, I don't know the man. 
And it was at that moment that the cock crowed. And I like the way that Luke says it. In the book of Luke it says, And at that moment Jesus turned, and he looked at Peter. And Peter looked at Jesus. Not a word was said. And Peter ran out into the night and he wept. It's not how he expected this to end. It's not how they had planned it. He wept. It was a dark night of the soul. We know Jesus would be crucified. And then on Sunday morning, raised from the dead, they would encounter Jesus in these unlikely places and moments And though they were excited, they were still somewhat confused. What does this all mean? And so it was Peter, who had been a fisherman, said to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And they went out to go fish there on the Sea of Galilee. They went out to fish and they fished all night long and they caught nothing. And as the dawn was breaking, there was a person standing on the beach and he said, Have you caught nothing? Cast your nets out again on the right side. And they did, and suddenly there was a school of fish so big they expected the nets to break. Now, no one had recognized who it was until finally John said, It's the Lord. And hearing that, Peter jumped into the water and swam to shore. John and the other disciples brought the net. It did not tear. They brought all the fish to the shore. And when they got to the shore, what they found was, Jesus had a fire going and he was cooking them breakfast. Now, I love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. When you've just lived through such a difficult moment, when you find yourself in a dark night of the soul, when you've done things and said things that you're ashamed of and you feel guilty, when things suddenly got out of control and went awry through no fault of your own, when life did not work out the way you planned, and suddenly here's Jesus on the beach cooking them breakfast. I believe this was about to be a moment where Peter and the other disciples would have the opportunity to experience God's grace and have a new beginning. And what I pray is that as you and I go through this Holy Week, that this would be a week where you and I receive the opportunity to experience God's grace and to have a new beginning. And I want us to look at it this morning. There's really two things that I want to say. First of all, Jesus is fixing breakfast on the beach. He's been cooking and finally the disciples come. Isn't it fascinating that it's Jesus who came to them. It is Jesus who took the initiative. And that's the way it is in our lives. It is God who comes, who takes the initiative to come to you and me even when we have failed, even when we've made mistakes, whenever life has put us in a difficult position, it is God who takes the initiative to come. They didn't recognize how He was working at first. And how often you and I don't recognize when God is already moving in our lives. But He is. He comes in a dark night of the soul. 
to help us experience the gift of forgiveness, the gift of His grace, to be encouraged to try again, to be able to live. Sometimes we need that love to encourage us in a dark night of the soul. You know, I love Mike Leonard. You may remember he came to speak here at St. Luke's years ago now. He was a reporter for the Today Show, NBC. He he is a wonderful man. He wrote a book entitled The Ride of Our Lives. He was someone who really was funny, but kind, a man of great faith. He is a good Catholic. And I, I just really enjoyed getting to know him and related to him. You know, Mike tells the story, though, of when he first started off. He wound up um, working for the Today Show, and he was a, a spot reporter. He would go out in the field, and he would find an interesting story, put it together, and then you would have one of these little spots on the Today Show where it was supposed to inspire you, to encourage you. And he loved being able to do that. And he started doing it, and he felt he was doing it well. But in the end, he wasn't really getting any feedback. He wasn't getting calls. He wasn't getting letters. He, he really started wondering, am I connecting with America or not? And it really led him into a crisis of confidence. I mean, he's out there doing his job. He thinks he's doing it well, but he's not getting the feedback. And he begins to get worried, and it really starting to bother him terribly. And finally, he gets a letter. What happens when someone writes in to, say, NBC, they will get the letter, and then they send out a form letter. Thank you for sending in your letter. And then they'll pass the letter on to the person uh, that it was about. And so finally, a letter came in about him, and the PR department sent it down to him, and it said... In case you're unaware of it, you have a young, attractive, intelligent, humorous threat to Andy Rooney. And Mike thought, I like that. Wow, that's good. I did connect with somebody. Finally, that's encouraging. He kept on, he kept on, and then he got another letter. What a magnificent Christmas tree story by Mike Leonard. He'll be whimsical while weaving a story in a well-mannered, exquisite way. He was connecting. People did appreciate it. It did so much to lift his spirits to have a letter like this coming into the studio. Some time went by. Another letter came in. It was from a group of women who were on an airplane, and they were discussing this new young talent on the Today Show, and they said, Why aren't you giving him more airtime? He liked that thought. That's a good one. Again, it inspired him. He, he kept on. And a little while later, another letter came into the studio. This young man you have is doing so well. He is really inspiring us. We hope you pay him enough to keep him. You probably ought to raise his pay. He really liked this letter coming in. And, and it really did encourage him. Enough that... He kind of moved through that crisis of confidence to to regain his footing and and to keep on doing. And Mike Leonard has gone on to have a multi-decade wonderful career with NBC and, and the Today Show. But he says as he was doing this and as he finally got on the other side and was feeling a little bit better, he said it was one Sunday afternoon after church, he came home and he just got out these letters. He said, yes, he really does keep his fan mail. And he does occasionally get it out to read just to kind of boost his spirits. 
And so he got all four of them out at once and began to read through them. And, and he, he suddenly noticed something interesting. That in all four letters, the person was underlining words to show that this was important. And he looked at how those words were occasionally underlined and he thought, you know, that's fascinating. My mother does the same thing. And he said since he had all four letters out, he, he, he just kind of suddenly laid them out side by side. Never had done that. And as he looked at these four letters, they all seemed to have the handwriting that looked kind of the same. So he started looking closely. I mean, who had sent these letters? Well, one was from Francis Sweeney, Agnes Daughtery, Constance Sullivan. And he said suddenly a bell went off, a church bell. These were the names of his mother's closest friends at church. And they were all dead. He said, the gig was up. America didn't love me. My mother did. To take the initiative to express love. At times when you did not even yet know it. But the very thing you need in the dark night of the soul to encourage you, that you can try again. I believe that's what Jesus was doing for the disciples. He took the initiative. He came to them. They didn't recognize him at first. But when they finally came to the beach, they saw he was already cooking them breakfast. To bless them spiritually, emotionally, physically. To take care of them. You know, that had to inspire them and and make them feel good. To make them feel grateful. I mean, don't you ever feel grateful when somebody's cooking you breakfast? You know, whenever I'm on vacation or I'm gone somewhere with friends and I don't have to jump up at the alarm clock or run into the office or have appointments, I love waking up and I can smell bacon frying and eggs frying and smell the biscuits baking, someone cooking breakfast. That means Marsha. I'm not the cook. I, I clean. I, I'm a good dishwasher, and I don't mind doing the cleaning up. But to get up and have someone cooking breakfast, it just makes you grateful. I think the disciples came to the beach, and here is Jesus doing something as simple as fixing breakfast. He took the initiative. He came. He was there to love them, to forgive them, to encourage them. What a beautiful moment for a new beginning. And I pray, as you and I go through this Holy Week, if life hadn't gone the way you expected, hadn't gone the way you planned, maybe your eyes will be open and you'll see that God has come to love, to forgive, to encourage it is a gift of a new beginning. But secondly, I kind of see that when they got through breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, come on. I can see him walk off just a little bit and, and then they look back at the other disciples there and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
Now that's referring back to the night of the Last Supper when Peter said, no matter what the rest of these do, I'll never deny you. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? You know that I love you, Lord. Then then feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? You know that I love you, Lord. Then tend my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Three times he asked him. He didn't ask him to punish him or make him feel bad. He was actually giving him the opportunity to affirm his love as much as he had affirmed he did not know him. To be able to say three times, you know that I love you, Lord. It was a way of healing. But there was something more going on here. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus had come, taken the initiative to come to the beach, to fix them breakfast, to be able to offer forgiveness and God's grace and encouragement, and they were filled with gratitude. But you need to do something more to experience the healing. Feed my sheep. Go out and let God use you to bless life. It'll do something to heal your heart. This week is about us experiencing God's grace. It is about feeling forgiven and loved and encouraged. But there's more to that. Feed my sheep. It'll help heal your soul. You know, that's why I'm excited about this food ministry and all the different things that we'll be doing because it's more than just about putting food in somebody's hands. It'll be about caring for people, relating to people. And I know that we are going to bless thousands and thousands of people. But something else is going to happen. You'll be blessed too. As you are the one who reaches out to care, as you are the one who goes to bless life, it's going to help heal your heart. I came across a story just recently about Michelle Moray. Michelle Moray lives in Minneapolis. It was about 15 years ago. She was 37 years old, married, two kids. She ran her own business. She went in for a yearly checkup, and they discovered that she had stage 2 breast cancer. It was not what she expected. It's not the way that she had planned life. They did their treatments. They began looking at all the things they needed to do, and they finally decided upon surgery. She had a mastectomy, and then they began chemotherapy. It would go on for almost a year. It's not the way she planned it. It was a struggle. For three months, she was sick as a dog, unable to work. She was blessed. Blessed because she had a, uh, a good job. She owned the company. Her sister was co-founder, and so she kept getting a paycheck as her sister ran the business. Her husband had a good job, and he was still bringing home good money. He had a wonderful mom and dad and family and friends that were bringing food and helping to drive the kids so that she could focus on healing and the family was taken care of. 
it was a hard time. It was a hard time physically. It was a hard time emotionally. In fact, every time she went to the clinic for her treatments, each week she would cry. But as time went on, she began to notice, you know, there were the same people there. If you've been through this, you know. If you're getting ongoing treatment, you start seeing the same people. It's the cycle of how it's going on. And you get to know some of those there in the waiting room going through what you're going through. And she saw this one lady, and she seemed really discouraged. And Michelle went over and sat down beside her. And, and when she did, she started saying she had lost her job. She could not work. And now they'd fallen behind on their bills, and they were about to turn the water off. The next week when she came in, there was a lady who was further along in the treatment, and she seemed to really be doing well. But Michelle noticed she was getting thin. And she went to speak to her and she said, you know, I can only work part-time and I have enough money to basically keep some of the bills paid and buy my treatment, but I don't have enough to buy my treatment and buy food. And I made the decision that I was going to buy my treatment so I could fight for life. The next week when she came in, there was a young woman who was just sobbing. And she went over and sat down beside her And it turned out that, well, she was a a single lady who who had lost her job because she couldn't work with all these treatments. And in the end, now she didn't have any money. Her car broke down. She didn't have the money to fix it. And she said, this may be the last treatment I get to take. I have no way to get here. And what Michelle suddenly realized was, as this was going on, this was a battle not only for your health and your life, And it wasn't just a battle psychologically, emotionally. It was also a financial battle. That all of these women who are going through this issue of fighting breast cancer faced a financial battle as well. And she had been so blessed. She got out her checkbook and she wrote out a $500 check and she took it to one of the nurses and said, Here, you use this. And however you think best, whatever you see is going on, whoever you know could be helped, you use this. You do it anonymously. She could hardly wait to come back the next week. She found she wasn't crying so much. She was anxious to get back, talk to the nurse. How had it gone? Who did you discover? And they were telling her, we found this person. We did this. I can't tell you what it meant to this person. And Michelle came home and she talked to her husband and she said... I want you to rearrange the budget. I want us to start giving at least $500 a month to these nurses to use as they see fit to bless these women who are in this financial battle as they fight this battle for their lives. And so they begin doing that and she saw two things happening. One, suddenly it was lifting her spirits. But two, She also saw there was no way that they could ever come up with enough money to help all the women they felt were needing to be helped. And so they decided to start their own Pay It Forward Foundation. They began holding some galas. They began talking to other people. They began raising money. And what I was reading about was just their latest fundraising effort this past year to be able to invite people to come together to raise funds to help one another. They now are helping women in 14 hospitals. And over the last 15 years, they have given away $2.2 million dollars.
But 14 years ago, when Michelle was going to this battle herself, life wasn't working out as she had planned. She cried every time she came to the clinic. I want to read you what she said. For the last year, every time I came to the clinic for treatment, I cried. Every time I came to the clinic, I cried until I started helping others. And as I started helping these other women, I suddenly realized I'd stopped crying. I looked forward to coming to the clinic. I wanted to see my friends. I wanted to hear what the nurses had done. I wanted to hear what the new needs they had come across that we could help with. What I discovered was that when I started helping other people, it actually healed my own heart. That's why Jesus fixed breakfast on the beach. So that we might be able to experience God's grace, His forgiveness, His love. But He also came to tell us, feed my sheep. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.